Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Happy Father's Day. Are you excited? I hope kids, kids aren't in here, but I hope fathers, you got some um, good presents. You got spoiled this morning. You got breakfast in bed. No? Anyone? Anyone got breakfast in bed? We got one. No. Mel's like, no, he didn't. <laughs> well, happy Father's Day. So we're in the, this is not a Father's Day sermon. I'm sorry about that, dads, but it will be applicable to you. It's applicable to all of us because we're actually in the middle of a series um, in Philippians and we've had to skip chapter two because I couldn't speak last week. Um, and as many of you know and have been praying for us, and I thank you so much for your prayers and support. Candy spent a few nights in hospital. She's been re- hit really hard with influenza B and... Um, She's on the mend. She's definitely feeling a lot better. So just thank you so much for your prayers and your support and meals and care for us during this time. And um, so we've had to skip chapter two. Um, Cain did chapter one and then chapter three. And we're going back to chapter two. And that's what we're looking at today. So if you've got the, your Bibles or your um, devices, I'd like you to open up to chapter two. And we're going to read verses one to 11. Now I'm reading from the ESV version. So it's the beauty of devices, right? You can read from any, ver- any version you like. So this is from the ESV. So verse 1, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in, in, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is your revelation to us. Like This is your spoken word, Lord. And we pray as we just delve into this passage today that you will open our hearts um, to what you want us to hear today. And what you want us to, to see about you, Lord God. I pray that you just through your spirit and the power of your spirit that you will help us to understand and to know you and your humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, I recently read this article, and it was an article about Google, and Google has spent millions of dollars over the years um, trying to work out what is the perfect team. What, could, what, do, what do you need to compile to make the perfect team? So they interviewed their employees, and they wanted to determine this. So the, the company's executives, they worked so hard trying to find the perfect mix of people, Right? They thought if they found the best type of personality type and best um, skill set, they'd be able to 
just compile the perfect team. And a few years ago, they ran a project, um, it's known as the Project Aristotle, based on the famous quotation from um, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. And it said, he's, this is his quote, that the whole is greater than the sum of its past. So they ran this project based on this quote, and this project was run over several years and included many interviews of multiple and well, hundreds of their employees. And um, being Google, they like to, they're, they're the data-driven type um, uh, Sil Silicon Valley company. So they gathered all this intense data, and it led them to the same conclusion that, that good managers in business have known for a long time. In the best teams, members show sensitivity, and most importantly, they listen to one another. So they spent all this money to find that out. So Google ended up highlighting that leaders in the business, that leaders in the business world have known for so long that te best teams are mindful of all their members and should, should contribute to the conversation equally, and they should respect one another's motions. It has less to do with who is on the team but more to do with how the members interact with each other. Now, I, I highly doubt that the Google executives read the New Testament as part of their research. I don't think they did. And I'm sure they would have saved a lot of money if they just read this passage. They would have saved so much money. And as I was wrestling through this passage over the past couple of weeks to prepare for this sermon, I really wanted to know, what is Paul trying to say? What's his end goal here? Paul, what is Paul trying to say to the, to the listeners and what is God wanting to say to us as a church today? And Paul's goal in this message is to help lead and guide the church in Philippi to be united together through humility. It's unity through humility. That is what he's after, unity through humility. So Paul was concerned for the unity of the people in, in, in Philippi as unity is crucial to achieving their purpose. Um, this was his goal. He wanted a harmonious relationships within the church. And that's what we want here as a church too. And it is the same for us as a church family and even as a broader community here on campus. We want to be unified on purpose. So it is, it's so important for us to pay close attention to what God is saying here to us concerning on how we foster that unity. So the goal of Paul is for unity. And so I just want to jump a few verses back into chapter, chapter 1. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to, you, or come to see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side by the faith of the gospel, which is our one purpose. So he's on about unity. That's what Paul wants. And then when we go to verse, two, uh, verse 1 and 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. This is unity again. So he's doing it twice in a couple of verses. And being in full accord of one mind. His joy is found in their unity. Paul is making, is really making a point of this. Why would he be making a point of this? Probably because there was some disunity in the church of Philippi. If a couple of chapters later in chapter 4, you see that. And um, this is true of every church. 
This is true of every group of people. This is true of every family, every relationship. There's always times when there's not unity. So the question I want to ask today is how do we obtain unity? How do we obtain unity within our marriages, within our relationships, our work work environment, especially in the church as God's people? How do we maintain unity? And the key is this, humility. Humility is the key to unity. In verses 3 to 4, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only... Not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So for us to obtain and to maintain this unity amongst us as a people, we need to look at being humble. And can you imagine what our relationships would be like, our marriages would be like, if we were to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves? This is how we are to have unity. But what does it really mean to be a humble person? What does it mean to count others more significant than us? It means that we count others worthy of our encouragement, of our service, of our love. It means that we serve others and we think about others more than what we think about ourselves. And one of my, most of my sermons, I'll always put a a quote in by Tim Keller. He's my favorite preacher. And he was paraphrasing something that C.S. Lewis was saying. And he defined humility like this. He says, The essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. And what he's saying here is that whenever, say, I'm in a meeting at work, when I'm in a conversation with friends or here at church, I don't go into a situation thinking with me in mind and my interests. I don't think, what can I get out of this? Or how can I look good in this situation? But rather in every situation with others, not, I don't have an overinflated view of myself or a deflated view of myself, but I'm just thinking of myself less. And I'm thinking more of others. That's humility. You're walking into these conversations and situations as, what do they need? Not what I need. But humility, as we know, is this, it's a strange thing to obtain and to grasp because once you think you've got it, you probably don't have it. As soon as we start thinking, yeah, I'm pretty humble, it's gone, right? You lose it. So how do we obtain the humility that we need to maintain unity amongst us? Paul gives us the answer, but he doesn't give us the seven steps to how to be humble. Rather, he points us to the foundational truth with which the power for us to possess the kind of harmonious relations that's necessary for this unity. What does he say? He says this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He doesn't give us these seven principles of how to develop a humble heart But he then turns their gaze to Jesus and says, look to him. Look to our Lord Jesus. You will find in him the very example, the very pattern, and the very power for humility. He is the pattern and the power for humility. 
Christ's humility is the key to our unity. In other words, he addresses this very practical concern of ours with theology. Instead of coming up with seven practical pointers, he, he says, I want you to consider the theological underpinnings that will give rise to humility that is necessary for the fostering of unity so that anyone looking into us as a church, they can see who Jesus really is and why he has come. This is, this is really profound. And as I was thinking about this, Paul's not giving good advice He's giving us good news. He gives them the gospel. And this is what makes Christianity so radically different to any other religion. And if you've walked into church for the first time, and honestly, all of us need to hear this, we need to be reminded of this, is that all other religions give us advice. Do this and and your life will be good. Do this and you'll be right with God. Follow this advice and you'll reincarnate into a better life, a better place in the next life. Not Christianity. Much more than good advice, the Christian message, the message founded in the pages of Scripture, first and foremost is news of what has happened, what has been done. Not what you need to do, but what has been done. And that is what Paul does here. He points to Christ and he he points to who he is and what he did. He says in verse 5, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mindset is already ours. It's already ours. If we call ourselves Christian, we have the mindset of Christ, which is yours in Christ, he says. We can't just get out our diaries each morning and write up, okay, I'm going to muster up the ability and the attitude of humility today. Rather, we depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us as he conforms us to the mind of Christ. And it's not part of our passage today, but if you read further in the next few verses in 12 and 13, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is him that does the work. That is why Paul lays out just a theological truth. He's giving us good news of what has happened. Not a seven-step plan to be humble. He gives us Jesus. He says, look to Jesus. In verse 6, we'll keep going. He says, Who though, for in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, as I was reading and processing and researching on this, I've discovered that scholars believe that the fir- these, six, these few verses from 6 to 11 is a, is a hymn or a poem that the very first Christians would have said as a confession to what they believe. And this hymn was in circulation among the followers of Jesus years and years before it was even written down. And that changes everything for us. And I'm so glad the youth are still in the room because when you go to university, you're going to hear this objection. And we, you would have heard this before. 
people often say, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just this really lovely, kind man who taught some nice things. It wasn't until years later that the Christians, when they were in their positions of power, they just made this up. It wasn't until the Roman Empire, or the, the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, that's when these beliefs of him being God started to actually emerge, come up, because they wanted power. You'll hear this, this objection all the time, but it's just not true. And this historical hymn is evidence that shows that this is what the very early church and the very first believers or followers of Jesus believed. The people who walked with him believed this before it became popular, meaning that it, was, that it wasn't something that was just, it was something that wasn't written down 100 years later or even 50 years after Jesus died. It was in circulation among the people right after his death. There was no time for myths to, to develop. No time at all. And even when Paul wrote this letter, there were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death and resurrection to fact-check what the Christians were claiming. And like Paul, he was imprisoned for believing this. They didn't believe it because it was advantageous for them to believe it, because it gave them power, influence or wealth. No, quite the opposite. They believed it in the face of death. Paul was imprisoned when he planted his church in Philippi, and they would have faced this opposition all the time. So this song was part of the heartbeat of the church at its infancy, and is what we hold here today, 2,000 years later. And Hadley Mule, a theologian of the late 19th century, he said this about these verses. He said, The assertion gives us, on the one hand, the fullest possible assurance that he is man. Man in nature, in circumstances and experience, and particularly in the sphere of relationship to God the Father. But they also assure us, in precisely the same tone, and in a way which is equally vital to the argument at hand that he is genuinely, he is as genuinely divine as he is genuinely human. So what do we conclude of all this? Right at the beginning of the early church, after the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, his followers kept coming back to the truth of Jesus' nature. He is both God and he is man. He is the God-man. He is equally and fully human and divine. This is hugely important for us to hold on as to hold on firm to this in our faith. And this may seem like a bit of a theological detour, um, but it is really essential to our faith and it's essential to this topic of humility. And I know you probably didn't come here wanting a theological lecture. Um, but it is so important for us to get this right. Because if we don't get this right, we could potentially be worshipping a different God. We must get this right. And, it's, and it says, Jesus was in the form of God. And the NIV translates this as being in very nature God, indicating that Christ was already in very nature God. Before he came into the world, he always was God. In the Gospel of John, the very first verses, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was, this Word being Jesus. 
there was never a time when Jesus was not God. And I love the way um, songwriters always write this so much better than theologians. (laughs) Graham um, Kendrick sums it up like this. He says, Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Jesus is eternally, totally, truly God. And this is the starting point of his humility, right? And it's what makes it so incredible. So when we move on to verse 6, he says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But he emptied himself. And it doesn't say that he emptied himself. It doesn't actually state what he emptied himself of. So we can't assume that he emptied himself of his divine nature. But if we keep reading, it shows us what he did and what he emptied himself, what that actually means. The NIV puts it like this in verse 6. It says, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The New Reliving Translation says, He gave up his divine privileges. And the King James Version says, He made himself of no reputation. So it was not his divine nature that he emptied himself of, but it was his privileges, his rights his reputation as the creator of all things. Alistair Begg, um, he's a Scottish pastor, he, wrote, he said this, It is not that, we, that he gave up the qualities and the attributes of deity. He made himself nothing, not by subtraction, but by addition. He made himself nothing, not by the subtraction of div- divinity, but by the addition of humanity. Verse 7 then says, is that verse 7 up there? Verse 7 says, he took on the form of a servant. He is fully God, but he, he did not hold that privilege of being God. He didn't, hold, didn't cling on to that. He didn't hold on to those rights as God, but he gave that up to become a servant. Jesus says, I am God. I have become human. I have become a servant taking on the very nature of a servant. He became as much an earthly servant as he still is the creator and the controller of the universe. This is what it means for him to empty himself. But what does it really, what does it really look like for Jesus to serve humbly like this? What does it mean for him to be this humble servant? There's a beautiful picture in the Gospel of John where Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper after a meal. He says to his disciples, well, he goes to his disciples, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing. So he took off his rabbinic cloth, like his, the rabbis used to wear these cloaks. He took that off. And it's a good picture of like taking off this rights and this privilege. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus, the God and creator of the universe, he puts his hands in a substance composed of hydrogen, chemists around here, of hydrogen and oxide, HDO. He puts his hands in HDO as the creator who formulated this. 
He formulated the elements of hydrogen and oxide to create water with just the words, let there be water. The same substance that maintains the life, the aquatic life of millions of species in our ocean. He created that. The creator of the universe puts his hands in the bucket and washes between the dirty toes of his followers, of his friends. That's humility. And yet how easy do we say, if, she's, if, if, if she thinks I'm going to apologise, she's got to be crazy. If he wants me to say sorry, he's going to have to do something first. I didn't start it, therefore I'm, I'm not going to end it. How often do we say things like that? We need to have the attitude of Christ and give up our rights to be offended, to give up our rights and look to Jesus and look to Jesus for him to find the pattern to follow and the power to enable us to be reconciled with our broken relationships. He gives us the ability to count others more significant than ourselves and to look to others' uh, others' interests and not our own. This is the God that we serve. And lastly, Christ displayed the greatest of all love and sacrifice as he sacrificed his love for us. In verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the foundational theological truth that transformed the lives of the early church and transformed the world. It's transformed my life and your life. They held God, the old church, these people held God at the highest of places. They had this massive and high view of God, and then they met Jesus. They were blown away that God would come down to their level and die, but not just die in any way. He died even death on a cross as a criminal, that the most shameful way to die. And by doing so, he took on the guilt of the world. He took on my sin and your sin. The transcendent, majestic, holy, mighty God would give up his rights to become like us, to love us, to serve us, sacrifice his life for us. This should blow our minds. He lived that life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserve. He was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become children of God and be reconciled with our Father who loves us. And that's what I long for and we all long for here as a church, that we will be in unity together in our relationships at work, in our relationships at home, in our marriage, in our church, that we will be we will obtain this unity through the humility of Christ, which is ours. Paul says it's yours. For a unity that is rooted in that power and the pattern of the humility of Christ. I might just ask the band to come on up right now. And also, youth, do you want to head on out? And they're going to actually display this humility for us for us this morning and serve us as fathers. Um, But as we finish, um, we're going to have communion together.
And if you haven't had communion before, this is something we do to remind us of this truth. But before we do, I just want to read the last few verses in verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our purpose. That we might have unity through humility for the worship of Jesus and for the glory of God. That is why Paul says this to the Philippians. So that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. This is our purpose, church. That we will strive side by side, as he says in verse 27, to be of one mind and one spirit but to look to Jesus for the power and the pattern to be able to do this. But where does it start? It starts here. It starts with me. I have to humbly just surrender my life to Him and say, I can't do this, but you can. You can do this in me. I need you, Lord. And this is what we want to do. And I want to invite you to come and take communion together. Communion is up the front here today. So as the band sings this last song, here I am to worship. He humbly came down. We are here to worship Jesus. So let me just pray and then I want to invite you as the last song happens just to come up and take communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son that He is the power and the pattern for us to be humble like Him. He is our example. Let us have the attitude of Christ. Let us not um, have our own interests in mind, but put put others first in everything that we do, Lord. This is hard. We can't do this on our own. We need You. We need Your Spirit to do this. Lord, and I pray that it will first just happen in our own hearts, Lord, that we will humbly submit ourselves to You, Lord, and say, I can't, but You can. I need forgiveness of sin. I have failed. But you have paid for that. You have given me the righteousness of God. You who knew no sin became sin so that we may have the righteousness of God. We thank you so much, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's welcome you to come and take communion.